Saturday evening and you're all still here. A weekend, uh, I was just thinking this afternoon, a weekend is a very short time. Although, as we were saying earlier, might seem sometimes like Sunday afternoon's a long way away. But a very a very short time really to get um, a real taste of this practice and its possibilities. A very short time to get a taste or an orientation in any way around the beauty and the complexity and the vastness of the teachings that support this practice. We might get the, um, the impression from a weekend like this that this practice is all about meditation. Because that's what we're doing, right? I mean, this is a meditation retreat. So I was just reflecting back a little bit this afternoon uh, about the way the Buddha first began teaching. So maybe some of you are familiar with uh, the story of the Buddha. But basically, after spending um, a lot of time being confused, not really understanding, understanding that there was some kind of uh, a strong dissatisfaction with his life, understanding, or intuiting we could say, there was some possibility for an authentic, free way of being. And then doing his best to um, understand what's in the way of me and freedom. And it may be a question that we ask ourselves. We may have some similar intuition, right? That's why we're here. Because some sense of a possibility for authenticity, for freedom of being. When the Buddha, Buddha means awake, Bud means awake, right? So the Buddha just means one who is awake. So it was the epithet that was used to refer to him, Siddhartha Gautama was his name, used to refer to him after his awakening, once he had worked out, I don't mean figured out, I mean worked out within himself. What was causing the contractions, the tightness, the pain, the stress, the um, unease in his life? And unraveled that, unknotted that, cooled that out. These are some of the, the words that he used to describe unraveling stress, unknotting stress, cooling out stress, extinguishing stress. Stress. 
the word Nibbana from the Pali. You may be more familiar with the Sanskrit word Nirvana, same thing. Literally means coolness or extinguishing, as in when a fire is put out. So this is the kind of imagery that the Buddha used for putting out the, the fires of stress. So I was reflecting on the way he began teaching. And in fact, his first um, impulse was not to bother. His first impulse is, wow, people are so locked in to their stress, so identified with their reactivity, so caught up in their stories. Is anyone going to get it? And then he remembered these, these five buddies that he'd hung out with and meditated with for some time. And he decided to go and, and see them. So he walked about 200 kilometers from uh, one place in northern India, Budgaya, where, where he'd sat under the tree, famously. And walked to Saranath, just near the town of Varanasi in modern India, where he knew his five friends were staying. And the first teaching he gave, which was really very, very consistent with what he emphasized through the, the whole of the rest of his life, the 45 years afterwards, was, well, he, he began by saying, friends, you know, life is stressful. It's, it's very interesting. You know, I've, I've spent 20 years reflecting on uh, the Buddha's teachings and most particularly on teachings around stress. Friends, you know, life is stressful. Firstly, we kind of tend to think of stress as a modern phenomenon for some strange reason. We seem to think stress is something that's been invented by corporate culture or consumer culture or, or urban culture or western culture or I don't know what. But we so it's a strange kind of human arrogance. We like to take the credit for everything. We think we've invented stress, basically. And we easily idealise what non-Western culture or agrarian culture or a, a rural culture or something we idealise as if that's not stressful. Basically, we idealise some life other than our own as being non-stressful. So it's quite of interesting to have somebody two and a half thousand years ago in a very different historical, cultural, social, religious setting than our own saying, friends, life is stressful. So we might say, well, yeah, okay. I look at my life, I know it's stressful. I don't need to come here to hear that. But there's something important in pointing that out as a truth. Not as some kind of um, uh, terrible accident. Because that's often the way we relate to stress. Is as a terrible accident. Oh, I'm stressed. There's something wrong. This shouldn't be happening. It ought to be different. 
Buddha says, what, what, what's stressful? He says, well, being born is stressful. Getting old is stressful. Dying is stressful. Being separated from what you love is stressful. And being not separated from what you don't love. Being with what you don't like is stressful. We tend not to, not to recognize the, the deceptively simple truthfulness of that. The Buddha was uh, quite keen on recognizing the, the truthfulness of those things. Getting, you know, aging, sickness and death is stressful. And the normalizing of that, like it's built in. Whereas we tend to think there's something wrong. It shouldn't be. We were talking about our, our kind of neurotic groping for certainty last night. How we like certainty. And yet we don't know what's going to happen. How we seek out certainty, even though all the places we seek for it turn out to be places where real certainty and security can't be found. We seek out certainty and security in relationships. As if if I just was, had this person, or if this person would just be like that, then everything would be okay. And then, rather annoyingly, people turn out to be rather unconstant. You know, or in this job, we seek out certainty basically in having, doing, getting, becoming. And whatever we can have, get, do or become can be lost, ungotten, uh, separated from us or undone in some way. So if we really want some certainty, you know, death is pretty much the only one we have. The one thing, if you're into certainty, if you're desperate for some certainty, here you go. At some unspecified time, but in, in the vast scheme of things, pretty damn soon, death is on its way. King Yama, as one of my teachers in Thailand used to say, King Yama is like the Buddhist personification of death in much the way that we might speak of the Grim Reaper as a personification of death. He'd say, Lord Yama is looking around to see who today will he squeeze the last breath from their body. And then he'd say, it could be you. <laughs> It's often a reflection on death. And the Buddhist tradition is used to wake up our sense of urgency, our sense of the preciousness and the instability, the fragility of this extraordinary aliveness. Extraordinary aliveness that we so easily take for granted. We take, for, we take it for granted so much that we're constantly overlaying it with a whole bunch of ideas, 
and reactions. A lot of our practice here today has been about kind of reclaiming the connection or intending to reclaim the connection with basic aliveness, basic receptivity, we've been calling it. Awareness, the fact that our life is animated One of my teachers, uh, when he was a monk, one of the practices he was given to do for three hours a day in the afternoon was this. Lifting up his right arm, then putting it down again, then lifting it up again, putting it down again for three hours, just to contemplate. What exactly is happening there? To get really inside the process is actually to confront the complete mystery of the fact that our life is animated. We may have some scientific understanding about... uh, um, You can tell I don't have any scientific (laughs) understanding, but uh, uh, neurons or synapses or something, electrical or chemical impulses... Sent from the brain, you know. But there's basically some mysterious. We know that there's some volition, right? There's some intention to move, and movement happens. Now, what's directing this process? What's directing being awake, receiving impressions, acting with volition? Quite mysterious and yet so easily disregarded in our experience. So the Buddha says, friends, pay attention to stress, because actually that's what we're interested in. We're interested in rest, peace, happiness, contentment, ease, no, we might call that by many different names, but basically, whatever we call it by, our most longed for uh, experience, the thing our heart most desires, is that, whatever we call it peace, ease, rest. Oh. The rest that we experience sublimely in brief moments in the arms of our lover or with a box of chocolates or, you know, I don't know, fill in your own gaps. Those moments where somehow there's some, something for a briefest moment feels, oh, everything's okay. But look at the expanse of our human life. How many moments does one feel nothing needs to be added? Nothing needs to be taken away. There's a complete rest. What the Buddha called the sure heart's release. Quite tragically few moments, it seems. 
So, what's going on there? We seem to have the idea, when there's some stress, when there's some agitation, when something's going wrong, that it shouldn't be happening. We recall somehow these moments where there is some, oh, some ease, some letting go, some rest. And we somehow think it all ought to be like that. We think I ought to be able to have just, um, you know, that everything ought to be all right for me. We kind of project. You know, we'd like to imagine, oh, we get up here on retreat and we feel good. And we come to the meditation and it's like, oh. It's just like mm, some kind of delicious quality. And then we go for breakfast and, mmm, breakfast. We, we seriously expect to be able to organize the conditions of our life in such a way that everything would be fine and lovely all the time. And then we get disappointed, stressed, uh, resentful, uh, and, and troubled in all kinds of ways when it doesn't turn out like that. Nobody ever managed to ha- just ha- organize a whole series of lovely, delightful experiences with nothing else happening. It's not in the way of things. This is profoundly good news, friends, because it means you can abandon the pursuit of uh, perpetual pleasantness. If only it were that easy, though, right? I mean, actually, it is that easy. To the extent that we really see the stress that we create through trying to make it other, through trying to make it different, through trying to make it better. It's not to say that there isn't room in many different ways for making very real steps around changing things, improving things. When I say the stress of trying to make it better, I might say, well, 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 you know, things need to be made better. They need to change. And of course, that's very true. You know, sometimes people kind of assume when you hear the language of uh, uh, abandoning struggle and just being with, that it can seem very kind of passive. People worry that they'll might, they're going to somehow become like. Uh, yeah, very passive, as if our capacity to respond, to act, to be dynamic, might get lost. As if somehow, you know, we'll, we might be walking across the road very mindfully, and then a speeding bus is coming, and we might say, oh, <laughs> I just feel my feet on the ground. <laughs> Bus getting nearer. Some unpleasant sensations arising. <laughs> Actually, if we look if we look at the lives of people who seem to exemplify a truly free spirit, 
we find very, very dynamically engaged lives. So, the Buddha says, stress is normal. Unpleasant things happen. And then he says, there's a, there's a cause for this stress. Maybe more accurately, there's a cause for turning unwanted, unwelcome, unpleasant experience into stressful, suffering, anxiety-provoking, strugglesome, uh, overwhelming, confusing, compulsive, uh, agitating experience. And he says that cause is basically our freaking out around the unpleasant, unpleasant, wanting it to be different. Freaking out around pleasant, wanting to hold on to it, make it certain, secure, keep it like that. And you know, if we just look at our meditation experience today, we may notice, you know, basically a whole catalogue of wanting things to be different. Sometimes on a quite gross level, we were speaking earlier about, you know, that sometimes that just wanting the bell to ring or whatever it might be. Sometimes on a very subtle level. But how much of the time? Almost constantly. We're wanting to either radically change our experience or at least tweak it. Sometimes, no, in, even in those moments where we feel, oh, oh, here's the breath, finally. You know? Very quickly we start, right, what else do I need to do? We're kind of obsessive tinkerers. Obsessively interfering with our experience. It's quite painful, actually, to see that. That's one of the reasons why it can feel like such hard work to sit around quietly, walk around quietly, eat a bit of lunch, take a nap, come back and sit quietly again. And then by this time of day feel completely exhausted. No, it kind of it doesn't it doesn't seem like those that would add up, right? But what we what we're exposing ourselves to in that sitting quietly and that walking quietly is we're exposing ourselves to the degree to which we're doing, 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 interfering, interfering, manipulating, organizing, planning, regretting, fantasizing, uh, nostalgizing, uh, etc. So the Buddha says, and hopefully our own intuition says, if we've been really paying attention to our experience here, our intuition says, God, let me really pay attention to stress. There's this wonderful line of the Buddha's where he says, I teach one thing and one thing only. 
dukkha, stress, suffering, translation, and the end of dukkha. And we hear that and we say, can he count? He says one thing and one thing only, right? Suffering and the end of suffering. Is that, what, is that, that sounds like two things. <coughs> and yet he's very particular to call that one thing and one thing only. Because where we really see stress, agitation, investment, identification, struggle, manipulation, etc., where we really see that, we make room for it, for the end of it. To really see that is to give it up. We don't need to work around giving it up. Was it today I was talking about the example with uh, the shoulders being tense? Yeah? Yeah. So it's like that. In the moment where we really notice, oh, that's stress. Oh. We don't really need to do the letting go bit. The wisdom does that for us. Wisdom knows to let go. What we need to do is get close enough to our stressful reactivity, interested enough in it, and caring enough to really see where we're doing that, how we're doing that, what it is that it's keeping going within us. Wisdom will take care of the freeing it up part. But, you know, we're really, we're kind of, um, we're very addicted to stress. It's pretty much all we know. And again, if you've been paying attention just to your experience today, you'll notice how constant or near constant that is. So it's almost impossible, actually, for us to imagine meeting our life without reacting, meeting our experience without reacting, meeting unpleasant experience without rejecting it, meeting pleasant experience without uh, grasping onto it, trying to make more of it, interfering with it. We can only imagine, right? We can only imagine what we already know. If I ask you to imagine a colour you've never seen, we can't, right? We can imagine. If I say imagine a blue, okay, we can do that, we know that. But if I've made a new colour up called, or I know a new colour that you don't know called, um, I don't know what, Breen. <laughs> Imagine the color green. We can't. We can only imagine what we already know. So we can't imagine a freer way of being than what we already know. It's impossible. And mostly what we know is a pretty tight, reactive way of being.
we're so used to, or addicted to, we might say, meeting our experience stressfully, that even when we recognise the stress, the tension patterns, the ego investment, the, the interference, that's so much our modus operandi, if you like, that we tend to recognise that experience and immediately apply more of the same to it. Right? So we meet the, the fact of our stressful reactions with more stress. Like we were saying earlier in, in the answers to someone's question, getting angry with anger, getting resentful about feeling resentful. We get fear about we get fearful about feeling fear. We get confused about experiencing confusion. And that's a kind of self-perpetuating loop. That's how all of that keeps on going. So when we notice oh, when we notice stress, when we notice reactivity, we notice maybe just our knee pain and we and we that it's not just uncomfortable sensation. We notice, oh, I'm tight around it. I'm pushing against it. I'm resisting it. I'm building up whole kind of ideas about what's going to happen. And then we listen to a little bit of teaching and we say, oh, no, I'm resisting. I shouldn't be resisting. I've got to stop resisting. We start resisting the resistance, which is what keeps it going. It's kind of, it would be a comedy if it wasn't so tragic. The Buddha used this word papancha in Pali, which refers to this. It, re- it literally means uh, building up, piling up. And the way we take one uh, element of experience and pile up on top of it and around it, until it and giving it a whole reality, a whole sense of solidity often that it really doesn't have. And of course this could be in any area of our life, but in terms of meditation practice, because that's what we're doing. We notice the heat, density, (coughs) prickliness maybe, of knee pain. We could just notice that, uncomfortable sensation. If we don't react to it, it's just that. It's changes in heat, Pressure, density. It doesn't have the power to disturb our well-being. Our well-being is actually limitlessly spacious, informed by the whole gestalt, which is a limitless gestalt, of whatever's making up our current experience. How could a little bit of pressure and Temperature change make a difference to that. But we say, oh, knee pain. We identify it as unpleasant and so quickly the reactivity to the unpleasant is that I don't want that. And immediately the tightening. So we add a layer to the experience. 
if we really notice that at that point, then we really have the opportunity to study our resistance, to notice what's happening in the pushing. And that too can happen from a place of spacious, stable, interested connection, studying our resistance, which lets the whole thing open up. But if we don't notice that, we add another layer on. It could be the layer of, oh God, how long is the meditation going to last? These are uncomfortable, I don't want it. You know, what can I do? I can move. I can pretend I need to use the loo and rush out. I can have a coughing fit. and I can will the bell to ring quicker. Whatever it might be. If we really notice that, then we have the opportunity to study it from a place of spacious, connected, interested awareness. The way... With each layer that we add on, we solidify the sense of me, the sense of problem, the sense of solidity around it, because we're not really in touch with the changing sensations anymore. We're just in touch with the label we've given it, pain, knee, don't want, how to get rid of. So we, we, can, we go on kind of from one contact feeling this, to seeing that, to remembering another thing, from one contact to another, piling layers and layers on top, until the level with which we're in touch with the experience is pretty far removed often from the dynamic, ephemeral, vibrant, living, changing... um, shimmering manifestation of moment-to-moment experience. So this practice is an invitation to come in wherever we're at, however many layers in we are, to any particular experience, to get interested right here. I read an interview recently with um, with a, a comedian, and he was speaking about watching himself on TV on some kind of chat show. And uh, he was surprised watching himself back at how quickly he was answering questions and making jokes, because he and he said his in his experience in the moment was feeling like he had a lot of space. The the interviewer would ask him a question and he felt he had a lot of time to kind of search around in his mind, make some connections, find something that was funny and then say it. And yet in the TV interview it appeared to be rapid fire. And I thought that was very, very interesting Sports people often uh, report the same kind of thing, right? Or being in the zone. A moment where everything's kind of working fluidly and where most significantly, in both situations, one's 
really relaxed, really in touch with what's happening, and confident in one's capacity. And then reporting, there's a lot of sense of space as if time really, really slows down. Time, as we've seen, is deeply subjective. Time, we kind of measure like this, one minute to the next, but it's not at all like that. The subjective experience of time can speed up dramatically so that an hour can go in a flash and it can slow down inexorably when you want the bell to ring. So significantly, this comedian was reporting, sports people report, when one's really relaxed with what's happening, when one's really in touch, and when one's confident in one's capacity, internal time and space can open up extraordinarily. And that's really the invitation and the possibility of this kind of practice. Connecting with what's happening in terms of our experience, the changing impact of pleasant experience, unpleasant experience, sometimes just a kind of neutral experience in between. The way we're meeting that Right? the kind of uh, reactivity that we might be bringing to it and the possibility for moving closer, exploring it and letting our attention soften around it can all happen within a sense of that being a spacious um, easeful process. A process in which one's confident, one knows how to orientate towards the dissolution of stress. And we probably have some area in our life where we feel competent where we feel empowered, where we feel uh, that we can really trust our capacity. And you may notice in that area of your life how things open up, how you can tune in and listen for the right response for knowing how to meet what's happening. And yet, rather tragically, the bit of our life that's most significant, that's most important to us, that most determines our well-being, how we react moment by moment to our contact with pleasant and unpleasant experiences, the way we interpret what we see, what we hear, what we touch, what we remember, what we imagine... we tend to feel lost with, incompetent with, incapable around. 
It's a, and it's a complete kind of taboo. We don't really hear that. We don't say to each other, you know, I feel completely incompetent in my inner life. We don't hear from others that. It's, uh, we, we, we busy, rather, putting on a display of competency. Trying to posture okayness. Present okayness. I'm fine. I am fine. You know? Well, we get these little cards to read in the morning. I am, uh, I am lovely and everything is lovely. Or something. You know? Which... <laughs> Which we repeat to ourselves as if we say it enough times, we, it might come true. No, I, am, I am lovely, everything is lovely. I am lovely, everything is lovely. Trying to cover over some sense of lostness, inadequacy, incompetency, and being out of control of our life. We come to an environment like this, to a practice like this, and we start to see the truth in some way of that incompetency and the truth of that out-of-controlness. Already yesterday we were looking at how our mind just has its own momentum, its own agenda. And even though we get, many of us, quite skillful at fooling other people, about our degree of competency or okayness or ease or laid-backness or whatever other kind of qualities we might try to project. It just doesn't work internally. So we often carry some secret or dark, painful sense of doubt about ourselves feeling somehow like a a lost child in a body that increasingly looks less and less and less childlike. While while our inner sense of ourselves doesn't catch up, we wish it were the other way round. We wish our body would stay as young as we feel and that our, our kind of inner capacity to deal with life would get as old as we look. So, the Buddha's invitation to pay good attention to stress and to how we manufacture stress, meet stress, add to stress, engender stress, is an invitation to close those gaps. To be congruent with ourselves. To first of all actually acknowledge. It's very relieving to acknowledge our incompetency and out of controlness. There may be places where we wouldn't want to acknowledge that, right? There may be colleagues at work to whom it wouldn't be a good idea. You know, I went on this retreat this weekend. I realized I'm incompetent and out of control. <laughs> but to actually acknowledge to ourselves there's some way in which 
You know, I need to, if I, if I want uh, that rest, that ease, that freedom of being, I need to get really current with myself. I need to get really close to my experience. And by honouring that, we open up, literally, inner space. Things start to slow down and simplify internally. Some of our experience is pleasant, sweet, lovely, beautiful, exquisite. And when we're not grasping, fiddling, obsessing, being compulsive around it, we have the space to really enjoy, enjoy, to bring out joy, delight. A joy that can infuse our being, a joy that can communicate to others, a joy that can really respond to life. Some of our experience is unpleasant, unwelcome, unwanted. And, and when we're not busy reacting against, rejecting, pushing, fretting, worrying, strategizing around that, we have the capacity to allow it, to let it do its little thing with a quality of sensitivity, tolerance, spaciousness. The space that opens up in our life, in our being, is the space to let life in. All of it. This is about one thing only. Suffering and stress, which we're deeply interested in, and the end, the resolution, the dropping away, the freedom from suffering and stress. And if our time spent here is in the service of that exploration, of opening up that relationship, then it's time very well spent for the deepest benefit of ourselves and all those we have contact with. So may it be so for each one of us. So, friends, there's a little time now, some time and space, just for quietly walking with yourself, 
or sitting with yourself and reflecting a little on what you've heard. A time for meeting your experience, whether it's sweet and pleasant in any given moment, or whether it's tender and unpleasant. An opportunity to give space to what arises. And then in about half an hour, the bell will ring and we'll have a last short sitting together before ending the day. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.